Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, the state of cryptocurrency. In this episode, we're taking a look at the cryptocurrency market and the regulatory and tax environment. While some of the issues of cryptocurrency treatment have been answered, there are more outstanding questions. Stick around until the end of the episode for a special bonus I call the world's most expensive coffee. Joining us now by phone is Mike Minahan, a partner at BX3 Capital, an advisory firm for companies in the cryptocurrency markets. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here today. Why don't we start with a brief explanation of what we're talking about when we talk about the cryptocurrency market? Sure. I think at its most fundamental level, if you think about a cryptocurrency, it's really a digital currency that's designed to be a medium of exchange. If you start there as your most basic definition, and then you can kind of work from there. For example, if during a family dinner on a Sunday night, if you know my cousin asks what's a cryptocurrency, the easiest example I can give is if you think about like a Metro card and you needed to ride the New York City subway, it's not exactly a cryptocurrency, but it kind of functions the same way. It's a means of kind of obtaining a service with a payment mechanism that starts with the U.S. dollar, but it's not your U.S. dollar that's getting you onto the train. So I think the cryptocurrency definition has gotten a little bit muddled. There were digital currencies way before 2009 when the original Bitcoin came out. But I think the introduction of Bitcoin and the use of a blockchain has kind of muddied the waters a bit. People now use the term cryptocurrency interchangeably with virtual currency, with a token, with a coin. And I think at its most fundamental level, it's a medium of exchange. But if you kind of use these terms colloquially, there's more to it than that. Because like I say, these tokens can offer you more than just a currency or more than just a medium of exchange. It could be a voting right. It could be an ownership interest in a corporation. It could be a right to as a lender, that sort of thing. Over the last six or seven years, cryptocurrencies have made it into the mainstream. We've heard about them in the news. There's been several phases in it, sort of a period of irrational exuberance where the prices went through the roof, then they came back down. Where are things now in cryptocurrency? I would say if if you were a sailor, I, I would describe it as a light chop. So we went from a period where it was quite volatile. So we saw at the end of 2017, Bitcoin prices hit just about $20,000. Now it's trading in the 3000 to 3500 range generally, and it's kind of plateaued there and it's been there for a few months now. So I think what we see is it's not as volatile as it used to be, but I think there are still some things that we see in the marketplace that look like a bit of volatility. There are hiccups that I think the market needs to get through to kind of get the reckoning out and get some of the bad stuff out of the way. So there've been a lot of stories in the press recently about a Canadian exchange where the founder had passed away and he was the only one who held the passwords to coins that were held in cold storage, which basically means they were held offline. And because he was the only one with the passwords, there's a couple hundred million dollars that people can't get access to. So I think there's a bit of reckoning around that stuff. There are questions and that's the kind of stuff that scares people away from the market. So I think what we're seeing happen right now is that kind of stuff is still kind of weeding its way out. And there's kind of projects that are not very good that are weeding their way out of the market. But that said, I think what's going on behind the scenes is the good projects, the stuff that's really great, digital payment systems and and, uh, ways of kind of adding efficiencies to marketplace, ways of raising startup capital that are more efficient. Those things are still developing behind the scenes. And I think the point at which you can do a transaction that's better, faster, cheaper than what you would do right now, and you don't know that it's based on a blockchain or anything like that, I think that's when we're going to have success. I think that's coming, but I think a lot of that is developing quietly behind the scenes. 
the scenes now. You mentioned the idea of raising capital. I guess that brings me to the issue of initial coin offering, which I've heard about, but I don't really know much about them. What purpose do they serve? Sure. So there was a pretty big run of initial coin offerings or ICOs, particularly throughout, let's call it the second half of 2016 through 2017 and into early 2018. And what we would see with an initial coin offering was someone would come to market with a good idea for a platform. And that could be anything. It could be a digital payment system, whatever it might be. That idea wasn't necessarily a business yet. So what people would do is they would sell coins or the right to the coins when the product was developed. So for example, um, someone wanted access to like a particular exchange where they could trade coins, right? The only way to get on to use that exchange was through a coin. And that coin had to be issued by the person who was running the exchange. The problem was those exchanges weren't built yet. So people would do a coin offering, take the money that they raised from that coin offering and give the promise of issuing the coins when the platform was done. What happened in the marketplace was the SEC was pushing back and in an informal way, for the most part, in guidance and commentary, but not necessarily affirmative regulation and saying, hey, if you're raising money in this fashion, what you're doing is you're really selling securities. So a lot of the projects that were trying to raise money through these coin offerings were really putting themselves in a spot where they were selling unregistered securities. So we saw at the end of 2018, some enforcement actions by the SEC where they were pushing back and issuing penalties against promoters of these projects who were raising money without ever doing any securities filings whatsoever. So because of the way that that has really turned in the marketplace, there's been a real slowdown in initial coin offerings. So the stuff that we see in our practice these days, it's very unusual to see what would have been called an ICO or initial coin offering, you know, call it 18 months ago. Those have basically dried up. What we do see are companies coming in with the same idea, right? I've got a good idea for a project. I'd like to raise money in an alternative way. I don't necessarily want to go to a venture capital firm, that sort of thing. What they'll do is they'll do a security token offering or an STO where they're raising money, but they're following the protocols of the existing rules and saying, look, I'm going to register this with the SEC right from the outset. This is a registered offering. If I'm selling to U.S. investors, I have to make sure they're accredited and that sort of thing. So what we're seeing, I think, is a real maturity that's entering the market where people are actually taking the right steps and doing the right things around their project. Do you see a lot of potential companies taking this route for funding instead of the traditional securities market? I would say yes. I think it's slowed down a little bit right now. There are companies that are still doing security token offerings now, but it's slowed down a little bit. And I think a big chunk of that has to do with the bad press. So the bad press, I think, has scared away some of the larger institutions that would like to get into the capital raise in this space or like to invest in this way, but they're concerned about reputational risk. So what we're seeing is, yes, people are still raising money in this fashion, but it tends to be more private offerings, private placements. They're looking at raising money from family offices and people who are, I would say, a little bit further along in their token education, so to speak, and are more comfortable with that type of investment. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to see another big push on these offerings during 2019. I think they're going to take off quite a bit. And a lot of that is going to be driven by, again, I think it's just more sophisticated players in the marketplace. So the, there's a big exchange that's coming online that was spun out of Overstock.com. So that T0 exchange is coming online in 2019. That gives someone who's an investor in a security token, it gives them an opportunity to be able to actually trade that token in the marketplace. What do you see as the benefits and or risks for companies that are operating either in these coin offerings or cryptocurrencies in general? 
So I, I think the benefits kind of fall into two categories, right? I think the first is that it can be transformative for venture capital raises and for startups. So rather than going a traditional venture capital route, which can be frankly expensive for a company that's raising money in that space, here's a way to kind of get your fundraising out to a larger audience, potentially a potentially global audience, because it's a digital marketplace. It's a way to raise money virtually. So I think that's step one. Step two is that I think it's attractive for people who are investing in startups because the tokens be able to be traded on exchange after whatever statutory required lockup period expires. So sometimes they have a, a one-year lockup on a security token. But once that period expires and an investor can actually trade that token, that's pretty attractive, right? So you're not forced to hang on for a, an IPO or something like that, right? So for example, if, if Uber had raised money via a token offering rather than the route that they went, which was kind of seed money, venture capital, and now they're talking about an IPO, if you were an early investor and you wanted to get out when a valuation was say $10 billion instead of $120 billion, you could have done that if you were a token investor, as opposed to being an equity investor in a traditional route, you could have realized a good return on your investment quite a long time ago. The other thing I think is that in terms of what's going to happen in the marketplace, I think that there's a lot of attraction to using, and again, it's not just cryptocurrency, but it's a token-based model to facilitate a peer-to-peer -peer transaction or something closer to a peer-to-peer -peer transaction. So anywhere where you can eliminate an intermediary in a transaction between two people, the closer you can get to peer-to-peer, -to -peer, the more efficient that transaction becomes from a cost standpoint. So for example, in a digital payment system, if you're able to reduce the cost of, for example, like a credit card payment from, you know, a merchant fee is typically, you know, two and a half to 3%, and then you pay administrative fees and chargebacks and that sort of thing. If you can cut that back to like a 1% via the use of something that's much closer to a peer-to-peer -peer system and a merchant-focused system, boy, you can really add a lot of value to a company that's dependent on credit cards or other payment mechanisms. You know, particularly for a low margin business that's credit card driven, you can really add a lot to the behind by embracing this type of technology. So I think it's going to be quite large because of that. Now, you mentioned this exchange is an outgrowth of some work Overstock had been doing. If I remember correctly, Overstock was one of the first online retailers to accept Bitcoin as payment. Are there other sort of largish companies that are operating in the cryptocurrency market? Yes, I would say there are many companies that are certainly trying to get there and they have projects in place to experiment with it. The problem that you have right now is Bitcoin is probably considered the most recognized of the cryptocurrencies. It's the easiest one to purchase. The problem with it is it's not efficient from a transaction speed standpoint. So Starbucks for a short period of time accepted Bitcoin, but the problem was it takes too long to process the transactions. So even if it takes, you know, a minute, which would be a pretty good transaction speed at this point, it's too long. So I think what you're going to see is that there are many major companies that will be accepting cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin, because it's kind of the, the 800 pound gorilla in this space, as soon as they're able to kind of master the transaction speed. I think outside the US, you see it quite a bit, actually. So for example, in Bermuda, if you take a cab in Bermuda, you can't use a credit card, but you can use a you know, state issued coin. Let's turn now to the regulatory market. We spoke a little about some actions the SEC has taken, but what is the current environment for regulation of cryptocurrencies? Who's regulating them and how are they coming down on the main questions about them? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. I think there are certainly, if you think about a token in terms of the many things that it could be, a currency, a medium of exchange, a digital representation of an ownership interest in a company, it could be a digital representation of debt, it could be a voting right, it could be the right to get on the subway. When you think of all of those different things, it really does implicate a number of different regulatory bodies in the US. All right, and we haven't even touched tax yet, but certainly many of the FTC, CFTC, the SEC is potentially involved. At this point, there's very little in the way of specifically enacted cryptocurrency-focused regulation in the U.S., which means that we're left to rely on existing interpretation of existing laws. At the forefront of that so far has really been the SEC. And I think a lot of that has been driven because of that ICO boom, primarily in 2017, where there was a tremendous amount of capital raised. But I think there was a lot of concern that investors weren't being adequately protected, that the securities rules were not being followed, that registrations were not being completed in the way that they should have been. So I would say for right now, the SEC has really taken the front seat in terms of regulating crypto in the US. But how have they done that? So far, it's really been through informal guidance via speeches by Jay Clayton, the head of the SEC, and by some of the commissioners, including the one who's been specifically charged with working on cryptocurrency and and blockchain-based projects in the US. So it's been by informal guidance and then by enforcement. So there have been some cases that I would say kind of border on the egregious in terms of the manner in which these projects raise funds using an initial coin offering. So for example, we saw enforcement actions at the end of 2018 against two projects. One is called Paragon, one was called Airfox. But I think the reason that those got the attention of the SEC was because of the promoters who were involved. So you had Floyd Mayweather and uh, DJ Khaled were both, I would say, kind of tapping their supporters to kind of invest in these particular ICOs. And again, I think, you know, they really, there was enough guidance out there that the project should have known that they had filing requirements that they just didn't do. Has the IRS spoken on cryptocurrencies and how they're taxed? Yeah. The IRS weighed in. Uh, In 2014, there was a notice issued. It's 2014-21. And so far, that has been the only real guidance that the IRS has formally issued. There have been reminders and that sort of thing around tax time of, hey, you need to report your taxable gains on cryptocurrency on your returns and that sort of thing. But in terms of formal guidance, that's the only thing that's come out. That notice is about six pages or so in length. It's in the form of a Q&A. And really the primary message that came through that notice was that for purposes of U.S. taxation, virtual currency should be treated as quote-unquote property without really further guides. It specifically said it's not a currency for purposes of Section 988, but you should treat it as property. So because of treating it as property, you fall into capital treatment primarily for people who are investing in the coins. Is the U.S. approach to cryptocurrencies similar to that taken by other tax authorities? Not exactly. So there are a number of countries that I would say are crypto friendly. So Malta has done an excellent job marketing itself as the crypto island, and they have issued a significant amount of guidance about setting up exchanges there, how cryptocurrencies should be treated, and really being embracing of the technology. Other, Singapore is a tax-friendly jurisdiction as regards crypto. Bermuda is tax-friendly in general, but Bermuda is a very crypto-friendly jurisdiction, um, and their government is embracing it. They're looking at using a blockchain-based model 
to deal with healthcare payments in their national healthcare system. So there are sovereign nations that are much more embracing of a, a digital currency model than the U.S. has been. What additional guidance from a tax perspective would you like to see the IRS come out with? Well, there's a couple of things. We did have the Token Taxonomy Act. It was introduced at the end of 2018, but never made it to the floor for a vote. So I would say the largest cryptocurrency proponent in the House is Congressman Davidson from Ohio, who's done a lot in terms of trying to organize the community, try and get some clarification in the rules. So he held a roundtable in September. And as part of that roundtable, it was very interesting. We were, we were privileged enough to go and, and chat a bit about uh, the tax side of it. But what was very interesting about it was you had 50 people from, I would call them the leading blockchain cryptocurrency projects or firms in the US. And it's unusual. You had 50 people sitting before them saying, look, please regulate this. We need clarity, and clarity is what's going to improve the market. So in terms of, I think, how do you move the market forward, right? If you say that, I think that this digital approach is a good approach to solving a lot of problems, right? To infusing capital into the marketplace and kind of unlocking it and getting startups going and that sort of thing. The approach, I think, is to make it easy for companies to do, if you're issuing a security, let's make it easier to register those securities and get investors comfortable that you could invest in a crypto. And I think it would be helpful, you know, right now you can't invest in a lot of these things unless you're an accredited investor. So that forecloses a really large portion of the U.S. population from being able to invest in projects, right? So I think that's perhaps a, a bit too paternalistic from a regulatory standpoint. I think there's a lot of projects that people would want to be invested in, even if it's a, you know, a more significant portion of their take-home pay or their net worth, but they should have the opportunity to do that if they think that's a good option for them. So the Token Taxonomy Act, I think, tackles a bunch of this in that it clarifies what would or would not be a security. And so as long as your token doesn't represent a financial interest in a corporation, then it's kind of carved out from the securities laws, which could be quite helpful, particularly where people are issuing tokens that really aren't, you know, all they are is an access right to use a particular platform. But it does leave that protection in under the existing securities laws where, yeah, you're selling, you know, a financial interest in a corporation, a digital representation of equity, a voting right, a profits right, that sort of thing. The other thing that I think would be helpful from a regulatory standpoint, and we did see this in the Token Taxonomy Act, is, is there a way to put a moratorium on taxation? And not, it doesn't even have to be forever. It, it can be a deferral to encourage capital to get into that space. So we saw when in 2016, 2017, when investors who were in the space were generating quite large gains on cryptocurrency uh, holdings, a lot of them were relying properly or improperly on Section 1031 and saying, look, I'm exchanging one crypto for another crypto. That should be treated as a like kind exchange. Well, at the end of 2017, when we got tax reform, one of the things that happened was we eliminated like-kind exchanges for anything other than real property. So what I think would be quite helpful for to bring capital into that market is to put a moratorium and say, look, we're going to reintroduce or reenact like-kind exchanges for truly crypto-to-crypto exchanges. As soon as you leave a crypto and go into cash, that's a taxable event. And I think that would go a really long way towards even getting the institutions to kind of say, okay, well, this is meaningful enough that we should be in this space. I guess that brings us to where we are now. Uh, as we're recording this, the filing season for the 2018 tax year is underway. What sort of things do cryptocurrency purchasers, investors, what are they dealing with this year in the filing season? Yeah. So this year, I think what you're going to see is people who are uh, realizing quite a bit of loss. I think what you're going to have is 
people who it's no different than any other capital asset, right? If you're trading stocks, you got to keep diligent track of what you bought, when you bought it, what you paid for it, the date you sold it, what you sold it for. I think your record keeping, just like any other capital asset as of right now, has to be impeccable. You want to be able to say affirmatively, yes, I can justify this, this year, meaning the 2018 tax year. You're going to see a lot of people who are sitting on quite large losses or have realized quite large dollar value losses. You want to be able to justify those losses so you can actually claim them on a tax return. And I guess uh, next year, a certain part of the population will have to be claiming losses on all those Bitcoins that disappeared on that person's computer? Uh, yes. Although that was a Canadian exchange. So I don't know how many U.S. folks were invested in that exchange, but I'm, I'm sure there are some. Well, Mike, it's been fascinating. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate the time. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, attorneys from Feingold and Alpert discuss the Section 163J limit on deductions for business interests, including its marginal effect on financially stable companies and how to avoid it altogether. And Mike Gaffney and Danny Simon examine how the proposed beach regulations will affect international banking. In state tax notes, we present a new installment of board briefs in which board members weigh in on whether states should embrace guilty, while attorneys from Evershed Sutherland discuss the Maryland Comptroller's use of alternative apportionment authority. And in Tax Notes International, Jose Calderon examines the transfer pricing control framework developed by the EU Joint Transfer Pricing Forum. And Delaria Palieri considers the issue of fiscal state aid and recent cases involving tax rulings for multinational enterprises. You can read all that and a lot more in the March 18th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript. As promised, here's my story, the world's most expensive coffee. It was caught on the conference line just before Mike joined us. Uh, in the background, you'll hear my producer, Golnar Zaman, and our technician, Derek Squires. Enjoy. I've probably told the story about the most expensive coffee I've ever purchased. <laughs> I think you told uh, an editorial meeting. Yeah, I, I, I often tell it because... Uh, so when we were... When we were writing this story, uh, we decided that we would go and buy some Bitcoin because, well, you know, that's the thing to do. We wanted, we wanted to learn how this thing goes. And then the second part of it, while we're reporting on it, we decided that um, we should spend the Bitcoin on them. And um, I bought, uh, we found a guy that was selling selling coffee, he was selling beans. Oh, I remember doing that. And we worked yes, on it. Yes, yes, we did the, we did the picture up there. That's yeah. right, yes. Sitting at a cafe, mm-hmm. which yep. just happened to be our yes. buffet counter. And Stephanie and I were there in the... Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so the, I bought that coffee with the Bitcoin. I spent two Bitcoin on coffee. And how, what does that yeah. translate into? Well, back then, they were $12 a piece. But a couple of years ago, Bitcoin went to like $20,000 a Bitcoin. Wow. So 
So if you still held on to those bitcoins, if I had had them, if I had them today, they'd be worth about ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! I got two pounds of coffee for it. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's more expensive than the coffee that Civet Cat pit poops out. Wow! Wow! Mm -hmm. Man.